We're in a mini-series on the end times judgments, and when you teach about judgment and eternal punishment, there are multiple issues that come up. And in the next two sessions, we'll deal with many of them. To tee up tonight's teaching, I begin by pointing out a huge theological tension. On the one hand, God's desire to save is so overwhelming that he paid the price himself with his blood by dying. And yet, here's the tension. The scripture also teaches that despite all of God's grace, there will still be huge portions of humanity who reject his offer of salvation. They'll remain steadfast in their rebellion and will finally and completely refuse the mercy of God. And when this happens, they'll face eternal separation from the very one who created them to live eternally in perfect communion with him. That's the great tension. In fact, C.S. Lewis verbalized it perfectly. So much grace, and yet, still, there is hell. Tension. So much grace, and yet, still, there is hell. We hear of this uh, terrible future reality in the passages about the final judgments, what we spent on our time on last time. There are two of them, the sheep and goats judgment and the great white throne judgment. And in your text, in your notes here, you have brief descriptions of these from Matthew 25, the Olivet Discourse. Look at that then. He will also say to those on his left, this is the sheep and goats judgment, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. These will go away into eternal punishment. And then in Revelation 20, the final of all judgments, the great white throne, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So with these somber and tragic passages as a, a backdrop, Let's deal with some pervasive misunderstandings and problematic attitudes about eternal punishment. Let's begin with a historical fact. Here's your first blanks tonight. Errors related to eternal punishment abound, both in the church and in the world. Historical fact. Errors related to eternal punishment abound, both in the church and in the world. There are few theological topics with more variation of opinion, more controversy, and more proneness to error than matters related to hell and eternal punishment. Teaching on this topic is a challenge because there's so much misunderstanding surrounding it. And tonight, I'm going to try to deal with this by taking up two challenges that are faced when attempting to have a truly biblical understanding of these issues. Challenge number one. Challenge number one. Uh, it's in, in your notes. Here's the challenge, first challenge. To affirm God's desire to save everyone without negating, without negating the clear biblical truth of the eternal consequences, consequences of belief. So look at what you just wrote in. Challenge number one. To affirm God's desire to save everyone without negating the clear biblical truth of the eternal consequences 
of unbelief. As we begin dealing with this challenge, I want to be really clear on five truths about eternity. Eternity truth number one, here's your blank. God desires for everyone to have eternal life. Look at this from the well-known 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God desires for everyone to be saved. Eternity truth number two, here's your blank. God has provided the way for everyone to have eternal life. Look from John 12, 32. Jesus talking about how he was going to die on the cross. God has provided the way, and if I, if I be, am lifted up from the earth, will draw all, notice that, will draw all men to myself. In the crucifixion, notice what happened. This was Christ announcing that when he was lifted up on the cross, he would woo and draw every person. How he does this, we don't fully understand. How he draws every person in every age, in every place, we don't understand. But that he draws everyone to himself through his shed blood is an explicit teaching that is as explicit as anything else in Scripture. And I... If I be lifted up, will draw all, all to me. So God desires for everyone to have eternal life, and God has provided the way for everyone to have eternal life. But sadly, despite all of this, we have eternity truth number three. Here's your blanks. Most people will not have eternal life. Look at this from the Sermon on the Mount. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And now we come to a biblical precept that can't be ignored. It's eternity truth number four. Here it is. Write it in. Eternal punishment will last forever. Now because... False teaching is so rampant on this last issue, we're uh, going to spend some time on it, a few minutes here this evening on it. So look at this from Mark chapter 9. I've put the text in there, and you're also going to have some blanks to fill into the text. Notice, and uh, if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where, notice this, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And by the way, this is an Old Testament and New Testament uh, precept because this is actually being quoted out of Isaiah by the Apostle Mark. And then look from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, talking about his return, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, here comes your blank. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want you to look at those two phrases. The penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Those last two phrases have the same meaning. This is really important. This is classic orthodoxy. We'll spend way more time on this next time when we deal with the philosophical problems related to eternal punishment. But notice, 
for humans who were made for the sole purpose of living in relationship with our Creator, eternal destruction, and being away from the presence of the Lord, those two statements are absolutely, perfectly synonymous. This is hell, away from God's presence. So what do we learn from this verse? Number one, write it in, hell is eternal. We'll come back to that. And number two, hell is being away from the Lord. Hell is eternal, it is forever, notice, and it is being away from the Lord. The most accurate description of eternal punishment or destruction is being away, existing, but being away from the Lord. And notice that this concept stands in a perfect contrast to the doctrine of heaven. Think about this. What is hell at its essence? Away, separated from the one for whom we were supposed to live forever with, in perfect communion. So notice heaven, here's your blanks. The biblical doctrine of heaven, eternal paradise, is what? <laughs> Being with the Lord. Now do you remember where the thief on the cross went the day he died? Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And where was he? <laughs> we covered this in detail, by the way, in Thursology 6 through 9. If you want to look at all the different eras from pre-Old Testament through Old Testament through the New Testament time through the tribulation into the millennium and eternity, what happens to all the dead people? That's Thursology's number 6 through 9. We dealt with what happens to people. So where did the thief go when he died? He descended into Sheol, the place of the dead. And that day, you ready? Sheol became paradise. And how could Sheol, this place of the dead, how could this be paradise? Because Jesus was there and the thief was with Jesus. So heaven, paradise, and being with God in uninterrupted perfect communion is literally the definition of heaven. And this concept pervades scripture. Look from first, uh, excuse me, from Philippians 1. The, uh, it's in your notes. According to my earnest expectation and hope, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How could that be? Look at this. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, the definition of heaven. With Christ, for that is very much better. The biblical concept of heaven is very simple. It's what we were made for, being with God forever. So why would it surprise us that the essence of hell is also very simple, being separated from God forever? Eternity truth number five. This one's important. The souls, here's your blanks, the souls of unbelievers aren't unmade when they die. The souls of unbelievers aren't unmade when they die. This truth flows directly from number four, but it deserves specific comment because there's a heresy being taught by some, called annihilation theology. Here's the premise of annihilation theology. 
here's your blanks. When a person dies, if they don't go to heaven, they simply cease to exist. But the book of Revelation specifically denies the concept of a, perfect, a person being annihilated when they die. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, remember these two humans, the Antichrist, the most evil human in all of history, and the false prophet, his, the one who, who is his uh, right-hand man, they are thrown into the lake of fire. This is in the Greek, this is Gehenna, this is hell, actual hell. Not just Sheol, the depths of the earth, but the final fiery place, uh, the lake of fire. And notice then at the end, so that's the beginning of the millennium. Jesus comes and then the, um, at the end of the millennium, a thousand years after they're thrown into the lake of fire, the Antichrist and the false prophet, again, who are human beings, they're not, they were demon possessed, but they're not demons, they're human. They are still there in the lake of fire. And this comes right out of chapter 20, verse 10 from Revelation. Look at, and uh, the text is there. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So now Satan finally gets his eternal punishment. Notice, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the scripture removes all doubt about the heresy of annihilation theology. The text says explicitly, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The idea that a person, a soul, a spirit of a human being can cease to exist is simply not biblical. And so now that we've spent some time on these very sobering and difficult truths, we're ready for the next challenge related to eternal punishment. Challenge number two. Here's your blanks. Let's put them up here. Challenge number two. To affirm the clear biblical teachings about the reality of the coming judgment, without being, ready, judgmental. Now look at what you've written in. The second challenge to affirm the clear biblical teaching about the reality of coming, the coming judgment without being judgmental. Now, before I really get into this one, I want to make sure that we're absolutely clear on what Jesus taught about the existence of eternal punishment. In fact, there's a truth about hell that's very sobering. Here's your blanks. Write it in. The most merciful preacher, the Savior himself, the most merciful preacher of all time, preached about hell repeatedly. Look at just two of these passages from Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it into you, for it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to go lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. And then from Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so Jesus, the Savior, the one who ministered with relentless grace and mercy, also taught a whole lot about eternal punishment. And this means that fidelity to God's word and to historical Christian orthodoxy requires the doctrine of eternal punishment be affirmed. Now look again at challenge number two. 
to affirm the clear biblical teachings about the reality of the coming judgment without being judgmental. So we've covered the need to affirm what Scripture teaches about eternal punishment, but now let's deal with the second part of this challenge, to not be judgmental. And this is no small feat. You may be surprised at how many times the Word approaches this. And so, to help us see and to awaken us to the peril of our ever-present tendency to take on the role of judge, I want to deal with four huge warnings from Scripture on this issue. Ready? Here's your blanks. Warning number one, judgment begins in the household of God. As you probably know, this is a direct quote from Scripture. But God's people have this strong tendency to think of judgment as being for those people out there. In fact, the most scathing rebukes and warnings and reprimands and threats in Scripture are leveled at the most religious people. And that leads to the next warning. Warning number two. Ready? When John the Baptist and Jesus spoke about hell, the vast majority of the time they were speaking to religious people. Just let that soak in. Let me give just a tiny smattering of passages from the scores of times the New Testament teaches about the unquenchable fire or the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth or the eternal fire or hell. And notice that the preaching in these passages was given to religious people who believed that they were very righteous. Look at this from John the Baptist preaching from Matthew 3. But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who, wanted you, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and he will gather the wheat into the barn, and he will, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Guess who that's preached to? The most religious people of the day. The most righteous people of the day. And here we get... Uh, the message directly from Jesus. Look at this from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Oh my. And look at from uh, verse 19 in that chapter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell. So look at the context of these teachings. When Jesus preached about hell, he was reliably talking to religious people. And now we're ready for a great biblical irony. Here's your blanks. Most religious people think of hell as a place for non-religious people. See, we tend to so quickly judge those people out there as being the people who God has reserved eternal judgment for. But do you realize that this was exactly what many in Israel believed, and this pride was exactly what led to their spiritual demise? When God's people think that about themselves and others, it leads to their spiritual death. See, they thought they were special. They thought they were in, and they thought that all those people out there were out. 
And this segues perfectly into warning number three. Here you go. Lots of religious people who are absolutely convinced they're headed for eternal life are completely deceived. Here we turn to the Sermon on the Mount for a passage that we should ponder often and learn from always. Most of you will be familiar with this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, it's those who even practice the lawlessness of spiritual pride, like the Pharisees. Those even who get the righteousness in the way of understanding that it's all of grace. And that from grace we respond with the Spirit's righteousness in us. Warning number four, Jesus' message, here's your blanks, Jesus' message was scathing to those who tried to determine who's in and who's out. Jesus' message was scathing to those who tried to determine who's in and who's out. Look again from the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure. No wonder religious people are such in such trouble when we become judgmental. Because our standards, the higher they are, the worse our judgment. I don't mean the standards through which Christ lives his holiness in us. I mean the standard of judgment that we're applying to others. Notice, it will be better to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? For some reason... People who've been saved have an almost overwhelming tendency to try to determine who's in and who's out. But the beauty of the gospel is, if we'll allow Jesus to be the Savior, and if we'll allow the Holy Spirit to be the one who convicts and draws unbelievers to God, it frees us to love like Christ and to leave the judging to the judge with a capital J. In my professional setting, being at a major secular university. As I've ministered to my colleagues throughout the years, I've found that deep down, they already know that they're sinners. They already know that they're separated from God. They already know that they don't even reach the aspirations that they have for themselves. And since, by God's grace, I've been able to leave where they stand with God up to Him, it has allowed me to have close relationships and deep conversations with them. And because I'd been a trusted friend who cared deeply about them, they've often opened up about all kinds of things that they never would have talked about if they felt that I was being their judge. As I have been with them, a beggar in search of grace, it's remarkable how open people are about their own issues. So as we finish tonight, I'd like to briefly return to two sections of scripture that we dealt with about a year and a half ago. Uh, If you want to look at the details, they were Thursology 57 through 59. Um, But I want to simply focus on the applications from these passages because they really fit perfectly with tonight's topic. Let's look at two pictures of judgment. First, 
the Samaritans. And by the way, if you, uh, Dana and I have been enjoying watching the whole series, all three seasons of The Chosen. And you can see these issues of looking out at others by this self-righteousness of their Hebraic background and just basically having, um, having no love, no hope, no grace for anybody other than people like themselves. So it's just beautifully done. So I'd, I'd recommend that you, you see those. Um, so we pick up the story when Jesus is traveling with the disciples through Samaria. Look with me at the text from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 51. It's in your notes there. And it came about that when the days were approaching for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. Verse 54, an astounding but not surprising verse. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Despite all the time they'd spent with Jesus, James and John wanted to call the fire down on the Samaritans. But unfortunately, this attitude didn't go away after James and John. In fact, as you look around some of the church, maybe tragically even much of the church, there's still a whole lot of this attitude. Some in the church can so easily join in the call for the fire to fall on those sinners out there. But look at the striking contrast with Jesus' attitude. Look again what they said in verse 54. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and he said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men, men's lives, but to save them. Isn't Jesus amazing? Think of the setting. Here's the creator of the universe being disrespected and rejected by the Samaritans. And yet, he had an absolutely unwavering mission. Ready? Here's your blanks. While it's all too easy for believers to focus on the wicked getting their just punishment, Jesus is always focused on their salvation. While it's all too easy for believers to focus on the wicked getting their just judgment, Jesus is always focused on their salvation. And now let's look at the judgment on Sodom. You may recall that in Romans chapter 4, Paul establishes the Old Testament model for justification by faith. And if you know much about the Hebrew people and their history and some of the amazing Hebrews that had lived, it's a huge surprise when the biblical model for salvation that the Lord inspired him to use was, of all people, Abraham. You may also remember that Abraham lived at a time when the city of Sodom was renowned for its wickedness. So let's briefly look back at what Abraham did when he found out the fire was going to fall on Sodom. Look from Genesis chapter 18. 
Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed, Abraham talking to the God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And now, Abraham intercedes repeatedly and begs God to relent, even if there are only 10 people found with faith in Sodom. And this gives us insight into why God could use Abraham to help him save his world. Do you realize how, if it had not been for Pentecost that transformed and cleansed James and John, Jesus couldn't use them to save the world because James and John wanted to call fire down on people that weren't like them. But notice how he could choose Abraham because he had in Abraham someone whom he could covenant with to save all the families of the earth. Look at this. See, the father of the faith, the one who's the biblical model for being a saved person, didn't join those who would have called down fire on Sodom. Instead, his role was to show the rest of the world that the person who has the greatest faith is the person you find asking for the deliverance of sinners. But now, compare this to James and John. Can there be any more dramatic of a contrast? Listen again to what they said. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But look at Abraham's attitude. Abraham actually cared about lost people, no matter how evil they were. He looked past their abominations and begged God to save them. He was desperate to save those who deserved destruction. His heart cry wasn't judgment and fire. His heart cry was mercy. You know why God chose Abraham to be the model for salvation by justification by faith? Because Abraham got it. It was all of grace through faith. Not his righteousness, not his performance. And he actually loved and cared for lost people. So tonight, I end with some questions. How much does today's church look like Abraham? And how much do we look like James and John? And who do you look like? Let's make this personal. I'm asking this of myself as I've prepared for this. Who do you look like? Do you find yourself in the blow them away camp? Or do you find yourself standing in the gap? desperately trying to bring mercy and grace to those who need it most. Do you join in the picket lines or do you look for opportunities to show mercy to those who are running from God? Do you stand in judgment or do you mourn and weep and cry for those who live in darkness? God can find Abraham's 4,000 years ago, but can he find Abraham's today? In his church? Can God find anyone willing to lay down their self-appointed positions as judge so that they can be agents of his saving 
grace. As we finish tonight, I'd like to challenge us all to intentionally do something in response to what we've learned tonight. From now on, I challenge us to keep the comparison between Abraham's attitude and the disciples' attitude ever before us. As we do that, I challenge us to remember that our Lord didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. Praise his holy name. Let's pray. Lord, your word convicts us. For Lord, it's so easy for us, those even who are theologically orthodox, to focus on punishment and judgment as something about someone else. And Lord, we see that how James and John, despite spending all of that time with Jesus, they were ready to call judgment on people that they didn't like, didn't look like, and didn't like what they'd done. And Lord, we pray that we will have your heart, the Savior's heart, the one that looks everywhere to show the mercy of Christ in every setting where we go. Lord, do so in us through the infilling of your Holy Spirit, who alone can purify us and give us the power to stand with your mercy and with your truth. We love you, Lord. Amen. Next time, we're going to deal with the philosophical problems that are raised by the Bible's teaching about hell. Questions like, if God is loving, how could he consign people to eternal punishment? Questions like, how can you reconcile God's great mercy with God's judgment? We'll spend time working through what the great philosophers have said in response to these troubling questions. You see, orthodoxy and orthodox teaching on this issue and these troubling philosophical issues that come up have been around a long time. I won't be making up anything new, but I will hopefully be able to focus centuries of teaching on this issue. How do we deal with the philosophical problems of eternal punishment? See you next time.